You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What is the thread that connects a parent to a child and a child to a parent? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the daughter of novelist E.L. Doctorow, singer-songwriter Carolyn Doctorow, stops by. But first, Alex DeMille joins us, who has co-written the new book, The Deserter, with his father, Nelson DeMille. Alex DeMille is a writer, director, and film editor who grew up on Long Island and received a B.A. from Yale and M.F.A. from UCLA in film directing. His films and screenplays have won multiple awards and fellowships. And Alex DeMille, welcome to the program. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for having me. Now, I don't know if you're a big sports fan. I remember watching the Super Bowl when New Orleans Saints won, and Drew Brees was holding his little child on the field after the game was over, and his child had his headphones on to block out the noise. And I thought about that. I thought about at what point in his son's life does he become aware of who his father is? So at what point in your life was Nelson DeMille, your dad, become Nelson DeMille, the writer in your eyes? That's a good question. I, I think I've often been asked uh, um, another way, which is, you know, what is it like to to have a, a famous novelist as a father, which implies that I always was aware that he was famous and there was something kind of remarkable about him and his career. And I think the way you're asking it is more is more real to the experience, which is that he's just your father and this is a job that he does. And I, th- I guess it was it was kind of a slow a slow realization when you start to go out into the world more and, and, and see people reading his books <laughs> or, right. um, you know, and, and especially when, when I, I started getting more interested in, in the film business and realizing just how many of his books had been optioned and how many people were interested in his, in the stories themselves. And then of course we, you know, I would go to a lot of the book, uh, launch parties. And I think at some point, uh, you know, maybe I was an ad- when I was an adolescent, you start to say, "Oh, this is this is a this is kind of a big deal. This guy's this guy's a pro." You know, <laughs> there's a reason. There's a reason that he's you know, uh, this he's he's able to do this full time and is working constantly and and has uh, he has this big following. You know, and, and um, as far as the actual level of talent, I mean, that was also something I didn't I knew intrinsically, but I I didn't wasn't actually exposed to it for a while because I was not allowed to read his books for a little while. Um, and I think probably the first book of his I read was uh, The Charm School. Right. There's something in Law and Order that's called Rip from the Headlines, because you know TV as well as the filmmaking business. And to what degree Rip from the Headlines is kind of the basis for your book, The Deserter? Is it based on Bo Bergdahl, who was a deserter in, in Afghanistan? It started that way. That was the germ of the idea. Um, we, they, so my, my, my father developed that with his, with the publisher, with Simon Schuster and with his agents originally, they had this idea to do a, you know, a, a series with, with two CID agents, male, female, and they thought, okay, maybe the Bo Bergdahl case would be a good launching point for, uh, the first case. Um, so he was, he started working on that with another writer for a little bit. It didn't ended up not really working out, um, that's what he brought to me. So this was kind of the germ of what we were doing, a hunt for a deserter. And I took that and we, we definitely drew on 
the, the Bluebird doll experience just as much, just as far as like the confusion of right. why would someone do something this crazy. But the character of our deserter is, is intentionally quite a big departure from uh, the Bo Bergdahl character, who I thought was interesting as long as he was, he was an enigma. Yeah. But for me personally, the more I learned about him, the less interesting he was. <laughs> so I wanted to create a character where the opposite would be true. Well, it's interesting you say he was an enigma because your deserter, quote unquote, Kyle Mercer, for many parts of the book early on and getting on late into later stages of the book, it's also an enigma to me. I'm not, in my mind as a reader, I'm not sure this guy may be, quote unquote, a deserter. Maybe there's other things going on in the gray areas that led him to be perceived as a deserter. How, do you, how would you react to that? Yeah, I think, I think that that's wh where we want to end up is a decision that seems reckless and destructive and perhaps selfish. Um, you have to, you have to kind of grudgingly understand by the end. That was, that was the goal. Even if, even if this guy is, is, has, has broken the law and even though he, the entire purpose of our, of our hero's mission and the reason they're in, in harm's way is because of this guy. I, you know, I was hoping, I'm hoping that by the end you sort of understand, um, where he's coming from at least. Now your father has collaborated with other writers in the past. He wrote May Day with a friend of his. He wrote a short story with Lisa Scottolini, but this is kind of new for him in terms of writing a book with somebody else that he trusts. How did that come about, and what was the division of labor between you and your father, Nelson DeMille? Well, it came about because um, he had had a he had another co-writer, and it wasn't working, and they weren't they they they, they he needed to write this book. I mean, it was part it was part of the contract, and it was part of the idea. It was he he had to get started on his next book. So they wanted a co-author situation, um, and it was sort of put on the back burner briefly. Um, but he, it was his idea to to approach me, knowing that I've you know been writing screenplays for the last however many years, and that might be a good background to draw on. That it might be also be interesting for the two of us to work together. Uh, and the division of labor was mostly that, with the exception of the very beginning of the book, that some of which the work he already done. Um, other than that, I wrote the first draft of everything. Right. And then I, I would maybe write three, four chapters and send them to him in a batch. He would do his work, send it back to me, and we would just kind of both go back and forth that way. Every so often, we'd both take a step back, read the entire thing, and then compare notes uh, about what we wanted to do. And this was mostly done by phone and email. And we live about uh, 35, 40 minutes away. And then we would do in-person meetings to do a kind of larger story conference. Because I, I didn't want to get too far ahead without knowing that he but making sure he thought what I was doing was a good idea was a good idea before I got too far out in the, you know, you, you, you're writing a mystery and a conspiracy story and you want to make sure that I had, I wanted to make sure the answers I, I had was trying to plant, you know, the clues I was trying to plant led to the, a place that I thought he would be find interesting and, and, and fruitful as well. So that's a really interesting process in terms of the art and craft of storytelling. Now my insights are not unusual not insightful to, in mo many cases, but this is what I took away from what you did with this book. And there's two frames of reference for me that really resonated to make what both of you done kind of special. And these references are Joseph Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness, and also because you're a film guy, Apocalypse Now, the Francis Ford Coppola film, which starred Marlon Brando and Martin Sheen. And by the way, Martin Sheen had a serious heart attack during the filming. And it kind of showed up on screen, too. So to what degree were you informed by, if you were, Joseph Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness, and also the movie Apocalypse Now? I would say I was definitely influenced 
by both of those. And obviously one is based on the other, but I think there's a lot of ways in which they depart. Conrad's book, I think um, one of the things I think is so powerful about it is the way in which, again, the, the, the quote unquote villain of the story isn't really the villain of the story. I mean, he's a, he's a madman and he's a dangerous person, but ultimately there's this larger edifice of, you know, this colonial uh, system. And, and in a way he, he is, he's the mirror to it. You know, right. if, if he's, if he's rotten, that means that, that the people that made him are also rotten. Uh, so that was, that was definitely in our minds when we were working on this book. And then of course, apocalypse now in terms of, I think a lot of the visuals and this, this notion of, of, of heading heading down the river into the jungle and obviously it's referenced a little bit in the book because you can't not you can't ignore it um and in a way you know we're all informed by pop culture so um if the book if the book references these things then you might think that the character acting them out is also in a way uh self-aware you know kyle mercer has watched apocalypse now probably and there's a there's a way in which what he's doing is itself What's the word I'm looking for? He's acting out. You know, right. he's, he's he's putting on a show. Everything he's he's doing, everything he's doing is laden with with symbols. You know, it's, he's doing it for effect right. in a way, right? Yeah. So my guess is Alex DeMille, who co-wrote The Deserter with his father Nelson DeMille. So how important in terms of the storytelling? Because we're kind of dancing around the edges of this book. Because I really don't want to give away too much. Because you want people to read the book. Are creating backstories for their characters. They're in this. Maelstrom of, of the deserter, what's going on? It's very dramatic and it moves quite quickly. But they also have an inner life and an outer life. As a writer, do you think much about that in terms of putting the book together? Definitely, I thought a lot about their backstories because um, we do want to see them again. We're planning on another book. Uh, the next book I'm going to work on is going to be with these same two characters. Um, so, for me, the the idea was not not so much that their inner life and their backstory informs why they are doing what they're doing, you know, why they're in the CID specifically and why they're doing this job, but more, you know, why they're doing it the way they are. I mean, so people often find themselves in careers, um, partly by need or, or, or opportunity or happenstance, but the way they conduct themselves in those careers is very much whether they could like it or not based on where, where they come from and what their own experiences have been. So, I definitely thought about that um, with the two of them and the fact that they're both veterans and they're both veterans of, you know, two different wars. Uh, Scott Brody is an Iraq war veteran and, and Maggie Taylor is, is an um, Afghanistan war veteran. And those, those wars are obviously intertwined and, and have a lot in common, but they, I think they're also two fundamentally different conflicts. So I thought in a way I, I wanted to show how they both got involved in different things by being in those two different countries. Um, even though they also are bonded by the fact that they're part of this larger kind of nebulous, you know, war on terror that doesn't seem to ever uh, end. You know, the last time I spoke to your father, we did a event, public event, the Madison Theater in Rockville Center on the grounds of the Malloy College. And it was for the Cuban affair. And I know he had spent time going to Cuba and I don't think he was thrilled with the trip that he took to Cuba, but the book was really, really interesting. There's something called a military phrase called boots on the ground. Now, in a sense, did you have boots on the ground in terms of research? Did you go to Venezuela? Did your father go to Venezuela? Uh, neither of us did. Uh, the, I always, I thought I would. You know, when I first chose, um, when I first land, when I first decided to to set it in Venezuela, it was around the time of I think the first really violent protests that were happening. So it wasn't the news a lot. So it kind of was on my radar. 
And I thought this would be this is this is a place that's always interested in me anyway, and it might be an interesting, you know, dangerous uh, locale to have to send them to. Um, and then things just got worse and worse. Um, it kind of receded from the headlines somewhat, but it actually got more dangerous. And uh, I, we also, in the course of, of starting to outline this book, uh, my wife and I got the, the wonderful news that she was pregnant. So, so we both decided together that I'm not going to go there and, and risk getting kidnapped. Um, but because I didn't go, I tried to do absolutely as much research as possible. So I read a lot of books and articles. And I also, I think more crucially, talked to a number of expats uh, who were here in the States or elsewhere overseas. And I also spoke to one uh, young man who still lives in Caracas. And so that was really helpful. And so what, exactly yeah. what kind of feedback did he give you? Well, it was, I mean, maybe not surprisingly, he, the, the, the person I spoke to who was still there was kind of the most um, optimistic about, about the situation. And he was the only one of everyone I talked to who told me I should come. <laughs> he said, you should come. You can stay with, you can stay with me. You know, he wasn't naive. I, he was very, he was, um, he'd been kidnapped, I think at least once. Um, I, everybody I talked to, had either been shot at or kidnapped or knew somebody who had been taken by the police, circuit police and tortured, or it was just, it was just, it was just awful. And, and, and it was not, um, there really wasn't even a right left thing, like, you know, right wing, rich Venezuelans who ate the socialists or vice versa. It really was a lot of the people I talked to were younger, had been kind of idealistic about this government um, back in, you know, back when Hugo Chavez first came came along and maybe even through through much of the 2000s. But at the, at the eventually everybody kind of soured on it from their own personal experiences or what they know had been done to other people. But he uh, he was involved in a, a youth dissident movement. They were trying to I mean, I think they still are trying to kind of really bring together a nonviolent civil society movement there, which is, is badly needed because, I mean, the, the, the opposition is the a lot of the opposition is kind of discredited in the eyes of certain people in Venezuela because of how much involvement they have with the United States and you know, likely the CIA and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty much disenchantment across the board, um, but with 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 some degree of hope. So you mentioned the magic three letters CIA. And the question I will pose to you. When is one intelligence intelligence organization come in conflict in terms of different agendas to another one? You've got CID involved in this book, and you've got the CIA. And if you go through the book, there seems to be an interesting dichotomy and conflict between the mission of one group and the mission of the other. Is that a fair assessment? I think so, and I was very interested in that that conflict. And I think you'd also throw into the DIA, the defense intelligence. So the difference between civilian intelligence, military intelligence, and military law enforcement, who all obviously have similar goals, but different cultures and on some level, maybe different, um, maybe, not, maybe not always the same goals, actually, which is where the conflict comes along. Um, I did, a, I did some research on the, uh, the beginnings of JSOC, you know, Joint Special Operations Command, which, right. of which you know, Commerce was involved because I wanted to understand a little bit about that world. And, and what I came away with was that um, the military mil, military intelligence was bec becoming more relied on and, and military special forces were becoming more relied on than the CIA because um, the CIA is sort of, by, by, by being a civilian organization, is sort of fettered by I mean, sorry, is hampered by certain rules, you know, that they have to report to Congress. They have to, um, you know, they're, they're, they're at least in, um, in print have to be a little bit more transparent, at least confidentially with the government. Whereas it seems like these new um, kind of more nebulous structures that were built after 9-11 
were built at a time of, of heightened, uh, you know, risk when we weren't thinking so much about that. Um, so it, it was interesting to say, okay, well, this is, this is a whole new world that the kind of, it just kind of was birthed before our eyes in the last 20 years. And maybe we're not even thinking about what the implications are entirely. Uh, my guest is Alex DeMille. We're talking about his new book, co-written with his father, Nelson DeMille, The Deserter. And you mentioned this is a new world. But I'm going to challenge you to a certain degree because one of the beauties of books, in my mind as a reader, that I can read a book and have an interpretation. Another person can have a read the same book and have a totally different interpretation. But I like to pull out, when I'm doing my research in my notes, certain observations that I kind of think about and resonate with me. And one of the observations I pulled out is, I think uh, I'm going to paraphrase a quote that's in the book, but it comes from Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, and I'm paraphrasing, essentially says, don't become the monster you are chasing. So what do you think he meant by that? And how does that work in setting up the narrative of your book, The Deserter? I, I think it, it, it references the, the line that always must be kind of walked between trying to operate Try, trying to put a, a, a kind of civilized uh, patina on something that's not civilized, you know, war, war and conflict, and the fact that we we, we are we are in a society that, that that likes to think that we're governed by laws and rules. But I think that that that, that Nietzsche quote obviously has a lot of um, resonance in the post nine eleven era because uh, so many things that are new uh, in terms of how we've treated. Uh, enemy combatants and the way we've used drones for assassinations and the way and the way we've justified torture, all those things that are um, somewhat new come out of the fact that we are trying to define ourselves by our enemy. It's a new kind of enemy. It's always a new kind of enemy. It's a new kind of war. Therefore, we have to change ourselves. And that's always a danger, right? Um, and especially when it comes to terrorism, at what point does this stop being a law enforcement problem and what point does it start becoming a war and i guess the answer is when they you know knock down the world trade center the answer to that but the, the the i think that is the line and everybody has a different interpretation of when that line is crossed or even if there is a line that then that, that ought to be crossed a lot of people think that these rules are are quaint and don't need to be there but i think it's an interesting tension and i think it's always been there but i think for at least for me coming of age uh after 9 11 it's very been very clear um, what the efforts of certain people in the government to change the rules and rewrite them. So where were you when 9-11 happened? What do you remember? I was in college. Um, I was in college. I was, I was at Yale in, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. So I wasn't too far from, from the city, but I just remember, I think I was in the shower when it all happened. So I, I came out and I, I came out and I heard a friend of mine down the hallway screaming, um, and I turned on the TV and saw what was going on. And she had been screaming because her, her brother uh, worked in the World Trade Center. Unfortunately, he, he hadn't gotten to work yet, so he was okay. But um, then it was just, you know, like a lot of people, just kind of being glued to my television, trying to call people and not having the cell phones work. Um, I was in a, I think because I was in college, I was, I was in an interesting uh, place intellectually and as far as, you know, studying a lot and sort of, trying to come up with my own worldviews and really then maybe changing a lot in the last couple of years. Um, so I, I do think that when it happened, I was, uh, I was fairly suspicious of a lot of the rhetoric that was coming out immediately right. afterwards. Right. Um, and, and that didn't, that never, really never left me, but I do, I do remember 
having a lot of pushback from other people who were either older or had different kind of politics or points of view who, who thought that, uh, I, I, I was very wary of all the, the kind of, what I saw as kind of jingoism around that event, um, in, as it was happening. And I think a lot of people that I was talking to were, that was rubbing them the wrong way, but that, that's where I was coming from. And if I had been a little older, I probably wouldn't have been that, um, kind of, you know, anti-authority, you know, inherently in my, in my, 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 uh, my viewpoint, but that's where I was at the time. I think I was, I was about, I was 20 years old. Well, I'm going to challenge you with another observation for, for your reaction and your analysis. I also took this away from the book, The Deserter. And the, and the observation is, and I will quote it, if the first casualty of war is truth, the sec second casualty of war is justice. What do you think that means, and is that true today? I think, I think it is true. If the first casualty of war is, is truth, I mean, at the, ultimately, no, 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 war, no war is entered into completely honestly. I mean, we, we look back at World War II as this noble thing, um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't really. I mean, if you, if you think about how and why we got involved, and there's a lot of, um, a lot of controversy about Pearl Harbor and whether there was any intelligence that was going to happen and whatnot, but that's a side point. But I think that uh, trying to define what justice is in the, in the context of a war, especially when I think there was some other, my dad has another, my dad wrote a line in this book that I thought was really good. He says something about the fog of war. The fog is actually in your mind. Right. You know, uh, the, the fog is, is bleeding you to not realize what's up and what's down and what's right and what's wrong. And he's been in war. I haven't. So he, I really relished those observations that he was able to bring to it. Yeah. Ultimately it's uh, war is, is, you know, we, we use the word quagmire a lot, but whether it's literally a quagmire or, or not, as far as how long a war drags out, it ultimately probably is a quagmire, morally speaking. You know, you, you might enter into it for a good reason or what you think of as a noble reason, but at the end of the day, it takes on a life of its own. And you could have well-meaning people facilitating really terrible ends. Um, you know, and I, I was in, um, I, I took a lot of interest in the Syrian civil war when it started because I was, actually in Damascus for a month. I didn't know at the time, but it was the month right before everything started, protests started, which led to right. government crackdown, which then led to, you know, the civil war. So I've been following it and uh, I was fairly horrified at um, our government's lack of action at all, you know? Um, and I don't know if I, if I hadn't just been there, I had, had felt like I had some sort of personal connection to the place maybe I would have thought, well, good, we shouldn't get involved in some other country. It's not our problem, you know, but then you, then it becomes personal for you. And then you think, well, there is, there is right and wrong. There's good and evil. I've, I've just, I've, I was just in that city that's now getting, you know, barrel bombs dropped on it. Uh, and you, you, you can't, and that's just me being there a month, let alone somebody who's, you know, who is from Syria or has family there and knows people there. You can't, you can't help but become, kind of tribal or kind of thinking these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, you know, and you have to, you have to stop the bad guys. Um, and I think it's very hard to, as just as by human nature to get yourself out of that. And maybe it's not even, a, it should, shouldn't even be a goal to try to get yourself out of that, but it is, it's complicated. You, you anticipated uh, one of my last questions in my notes. And mm -hmm. that's, I think back to your father who was a combat veteran in Vietnam. And after the war ended, there's a famous scene of people trying to escape on, on 
on top of the embassy in Saigon, and some got away and some didn't. And I thought a lot about what happened to the people left behind. I think about Afghanistan and all the people that work with the American military and the soldiers and the diplomats, and they got kind of abandoned. I think about the Kurds who just want their own region, and we've kind of abandoned them. And this is a really serious issue, and I don't want to get too serious, but you're touching upon that. What is our responsibility not to leave these people behind because you have a character in your book who's a driver for two of your main characters named Luis. And it's a feeling there also. He's going to kind of get left behind after helping these people. And it's a very serious issue that I think in this time and place in this country, we're not appropriately dealing with the people that we leave behind. What is our responsibility? And it's going to be ethnic cleansing with the Kurds. And and in this current administration environment, we're kind of sentencing them to death. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I think what 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 uh, Donald Trump. And I'm not even going to say the Trump administration because it really is just. There's a lot of people in the administration who are very much against what's happening. It's really just him as a human being, uh, what he's done. Uh, I think it's shameful, and I think that there is a transactional way to look at it, which is to say we help them because they helped us, and we need people, else, other people, to help us in the future. And we hear that a lot now. Who's going to trust us ever again? It's like okay, that's important, but. That's who cares. At the, at the moment, it's not about that. It's about the fact that you've actually betrayed these people and people are are dying who um, helped you. And if you do want to, if you are interested in justice, I mean, you can, all you have to do is look at what, for instance, the Kurds or another example would be a lot of the people who have helped you know, the American army in Iraq and in Afghanistan, what they stood for versus what either of these horrible governments that, that they were living understood for or these radical, uh, you know, uh, Islamic fundamentalists, there is a, with the Kurds, there is a kernel of a quote unquote, I don't even want to say Western, but a kind of a more Western style, more secular, um, more, you know, uh, gender equitable society. So there, it, it can't. It doesn't get much clearer than that. As far as these are these, I mean, if you if you're trying to find good guys, I mean, it doesn't get much more obvious than that. And I think probably partly what what I think bothers so many people about this, whether they're on the right or the left, with what's happened with the Kurds, is that you can't even make a transactional argument because there isn't one. It's a moral failing, and it doesn't even make sense from like a mercenary standpoint. So it's just stupid. It's like people dying uh, for nothing, and. There, there are definitely are ways in which we abandoned and did not help enough people who helped us in Iraq. And for, I mean, for one thing, you know, we, we destroyed the country and then then didn't didn't really get involved fast enough when that led to the rise of ISIS. Obviously, so a lot of people who helped us suffered and died. But uh, in this instance, uh, there wasn't even it was just nonsense. I think that's what people always make people. It's like you can't make a moral case for it nor can you make a cold, calculated, transactional case for it. And I think either of those cases sometimes have to come into play in war. You know, we'd really prefer it to be moral, but that's not, that's not the way the world works. But I think when, when we're faced with this person, again, I'm not even saying the Trump administration, I'm just saying him as a person. He does these things that just, I think, they bother me to the core, I think a lot of other people, because not, it's not just that they're immoral, it's that they are uh, chaotic. It's like it's it's complete chaos, uh, and uh, that's concerning. 
All right. Alex, we're out of time. My guest has been Alex DeMille, who wrote the book The Deserter with his father, Nelson DeMille. I thank you so much for your time. After the break, singer-songwriter Carolyn Doctorow, whose father is a great novelist himself, E.L. Doctorow, joins the conversation. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. In studio right now, Caroline Doctorow joins us. Caroline, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit before you play and, and share some music with us. Every person I know who's an artist has an origin story. So where did music start for you? Oh, that's such a good question. Music started for me because my parents, I grew up in uh, New Rochelle, New York, and it was the time of sort of the um, folk song revival, folk music revival. And my parents were very interested in folk music, and they had sort of a little hobby folk band um, based after the Weavers. And my father was a real big Pete Seeger fan. Oh, and yeah. Um, yeah. So they had this little band, um, kind of a Weavers wannabe band. Um, and so I just would listen to them play. Um, usually Sunday nights we would get together with our cousins and all the grown-ups would play music and I think that had an effect on me. And also, at the time that I grew up in the 60s, there was a folk boom. And so it was just sort of natural to have a guitar in your hand and learn how to play it. And that's what I did. So you reference your father. The thread of this episode with the previous guests, Alex DeMille and you, is connection to a parent. Your father was E.L. Doctorow. Um, gifted novelist. We often, often mention ragtime. What was it like growing up with him, a man who was very creative in his own right? Yeah, well, it was a really interesting upbringing, and there were always um, writers and artists and musicians and poets and painters coming through the house in New Rochelle. You know, my father's colleagues and friends, my parents' friends. Um, but it's interesting because what I remember about my dad, one of the things is that he always had time for us, even if we went into his office where he was writing and interrupted him. You know, he never turned us away. Um, so he was very present, somehow managing to do that and be extremely productive in his career. Um, you know, and there was tons of books in the house, and he bought us all the classics. Right. and. Um, you know, my mother is very literary and super well-read as well and would always still corrects my grammar. And <laughs> um, so, and also my dad never, he always made us think that we could do whatever we set out to do. Um, you know, he didn't say a girl can't do that or a boy can't do that. Um and he, he was always up to the very end encouraging about my career as a songwriter and singer. 
So let's go way back. I, I like asking this question because this podcast is coming from the best library in Long Island, the Sachin Public Library. So do you remember the first book that you ever read or the first book you ever took out of the library? I think the first book that I ever read, um, I'm, I'm not sure I can remember the title, but it was a really popular kids book about the um, the dog that his spots turn different colors. Do you remember that one? I can't remember. I think, I'm sorry, I can't remember the title. I'll have to think about that. Um, and also there was a little book I read about a bird who falls out of the nest. And the title was something like, Where is My Mother? And the bird keeps going around to these different animals and it's not a good fit. And finally the bird finds its mother. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to ask for a favor because we didn't rehearse anything. Can you do a song for us? Because having access to you doing live music uh, is a real treat. Oh, yes. Thank you. I think that I'm going to do a song that I wrote, um, and I'll give you a little history as I start playing the song. I, I love history. Go with it. <laughs> well, back when we lived um, in New Rochelle, this was maybe in the early 70s, we had a Ford Country Squire station wagon and that was the kind with a big long seat in the front and a seat in the back. They didn't have bucket seats back then and so if you wanted to move the seat up the whole family had to get in the action and uh, we took a lot of really wonderful family trips in that car and one year in uh, late autumn we drove all the way out to Southern California because my dad got a job teaching at the University of uh, Irvine, I think it was, and we managed to stop at a lot of the beautiful places our country has to offer, like the Grand Canyon and the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina where my mother's family is from. And we made a large detour out to the Dinosaur National Park in Utah because my little brother, when we left New Rochelle, was really into dinosaurs. But by the time we got out to Utah, he wasn't into dinosaurs anymore. <laughs> but mostly what I remember about those trips is that we all managed to live in the moment. And that's really what this song is about traveling around in a Ford Country Squire station wagon, living in the moment, and it's called To Be Here. I want to ride some lonesome highway way out west Put that old Ford Country Squire to the test Drive until there's nothing left around me Stop when I reach the desert plains they call the big empty. I'm gonna stand by the side of the road where I can see the horizon in every direction. Feel the wind and the sun in my hair, even for a second. I'll know what it feels like to be here. With you If we ride that highway south Towards the Shenandoah Winding 
through the Blue Ridge Hills onto the Carolinas. Watch a pretty red-winged blackbird fly in a pale blue southern sky. And I'll know what it feels like to be here with you. Time moves fast and it waits for no one So I'm gonna live like someone left the gate open Yesterday's gone, tomorrow never comes And I wanna know what it feels like to be here With you Up the northeast coast, that's the place I love the most. Seaside bonfire down by the boats. Sailing your sunfish around the cove, that's how I'll remember your love. So I'll know what it feels like to be here. I'll know what it feels like to be here. with you with you with you I gotta pause for a minute because I know dead air is, is a no-no but um, you just heard from Caroline Dr. O. And the reason why I'm reacting this way, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, a lot of very well-known writers, but there's just something special about music and in terms of emotional response. Because I find for me, I don't speak for myself, I have a very visceral reaction to what you just did, but in general, to music. Mm -hmm. uh, can you understand how you can touch people through music as opposed to the written word? For me, there's nothing more moving than listening to somebody sing a song. And I like all different kinds of music. I'm a big fan of Lizzo. And I love Alison Krauss. We'll talk about her performing with uh, Robert Plant. But can you understand how what you do has the ability to touch people in a special way? Well, I can only hope that, uh, you know, that's what happens. And I would like to mention that um, I perform it in libraries almost one every week, a different library every week. And um, the thing that I love about playing in libraries is the feeling of community and that, um, the feeling of fellowship and that we're all sort of in this together. And uh, as a matter of fact, the way that I got started performing in libraries, and I don't know if this answers your question, but um, was through my dad when he would do readings um, when Ragtime came out. He wanted songs that had his, a historical connection right. to his written word. So he would ask me to learn songs of the period like um, Bird in a Gilded Cage and yeah. um, I Ride an Old Paint and um, things like that. But to really get back to your question you know that's what you hope for in this field that i'm in of music um you know is to reach people and really what you want to do is have the 
audience say, you know, I, I felt like that too. That's really all you're... So, so in a sense, is that personal validation for you? Because you can sit and record an album or a CD or whatever, but it's it's kind of... It's immediate, yeah. It, it's a cocoon. Yeah, it's yeah, a cocoon. Yeah. And I think, especially when I deal with writers, I think it's really important to put them in front of an audience because they see who reads their books. They, right, and they want right. to be seen, they want to be heard going back and forth between the audience and the performer and the writer. So in my mind, that's the best possible situation, being in front of an audience. Do you take energy from that? Yes, definitely. And, you know, that's a hard thing to... Um, you wonder where else in life that feeling happens, you know, because it's almost like a it's almost like a high when when you feel like you're right. connecting with people. Do you have musical influences, people that you listen to, have listened to, that not shaping you necessarily, but you're saying, "Oh wow!" I, I think of Jackson Brown and an album called "Late for the Sky." Yeah, and his imagery in "Late for the Sky," he's saying things I understand. And I like listening to him late at night with my eyes shut. Hmm. But he's saying, you know, in a way, I'm saying, wow. I never thought about verbalizing myself that way. And one, because I'm not talented enough to have those kind of thoughts, but I can understand what you're saying by the way you're saying that. And to me, that's really special about also what you kind of do. So who has kind of shaped you or been influenced you or who you would just like listening to with your eyes shut late at night? <laughs> well, when I was growing up, it was all the um, folk artists of the day, Joan Baez, of course. And, um, you know, she wasn't writing songs back then, but her delivery and her interpretation was so, um, I don't even know what the word would be powerful and I did get to meet her when I was a kid because my father edited her um, first autobiography called Daybreak and she was a very big influence um, and uh, also Richard and Mimi Farina <laughs> uh, Mimi Farina was Joan Baez's youngest sister yeah. and she married um, Richard Farina who was really a lot of people say the first Bob Dylan because he hung out with Bob, and he influenced Bob in that Richard Farina came up with a kind of songwriting that was, um, you know, you didn't, you, it was like free-floating thinking right, right. association kind of songwriting. You almost didn't know what the song was about, but it created such a specific mood in you that you couldn't resist it. So I listened to them a lot, and actually I recorded a... Um, retrospective of their work called Another Country and that was produced by Pete Kennedy and came out in 2009 and it's probably my favorite album that I've ever recorded and also Donovan who I guess in a way <laughs> he was um, overshadowed by Dylan but when you listen to Donovan now his song his songwriting so stands the test of time that you know no wonder we loved him you know, he just had such a unique, appealing right. style and right. beautiful delivery. Um, I would also say Glenn Campbell. I, we listened to a lot of his records and the English rock band, folk rock band, Steel I Span. You know, and um, the other day I was listening to the radio in the car and Paul Simon's um, song, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, came on. And you just... It's so profound and so above, mo you know, what 
most other songwriters can do. Did you want to say something? It, it, I, I didn't want to interrupt, but I, if I don't interrupt, I'm going to forget the thought. My favorite line in Paul Simon's song is, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. Yeah, somebody I did, just I, I love said that, that to I me. I love that. Yeah. yeah, somebody else just pointed out that lyric to me. Um, anyway, he's amazing. And um, who else do I listen to? You know, you, you have to study Bob Dylan, and you can't ever hope to, um, you know, reach anything in the realm of what he's done. But if you, um, somebody, I took a songwriting class and the guy told me to let the listener know in the first two lines what the song is about. You know, and if you listen to a good song, it'll do that for you. Um, so that's something that I do try to do in my own writing, and I know that Dylan does that, and he also said that you have to have that extra dimension in a song, you know, that you have to have that thing that somehow brings it deeper than the obvious surfacey thing of what you're writing about. It's almost called they call hook him and hold him, but you know yeah. what? You're doing, doing for me, myself, and also the audience, a little bit of a master class, so let's continue the master class can you play another song for us? Yeah, let's see. What will I do? You know, I'm a big Woody Guthrie fan, and uh, all right, I I will tell a story about Woody Guthrie after you after you perform. <laughs> Personal okay. story. Anyway, I got to a couple times so far play at um, let's see. I guess it's called the Guthrie Center in um, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and it's. Uh, held at the church that used that was out the Alice's restaurant church and so um in July of 2016 that um would that marked Woody Guthrie's 100th birthday and so they asked everybody in the series that year if they would um try to write a song about Woody Guthrie and believe it or not it took me a year to even come up with the concept because I thought whatever could I offer that hasn't already been written about Woody Guthrie? But then I was watching a video of Pete Seeger, and he said in the video he was being interviewed, and he said, Woody Guthrie was our finest ballad maker. So I thought, okay, I can work with that. So I wrote a song called The Ballad Maker, and the interesting thing about it was that I almost didn't even have to write the song because he lived such an extraordinary and difficult life um, but left us with 3,000 songs despite having a horrible disease, Huntington's Korea, is I think how you pronounce it. That's, that's correct. And uh, had such tragedy in his personal life. Um, when he was a little boy, he went across the street. His mother went across the street to borrow a cup of sugar, and a fire broke out, and his little sister perished in the fire. And then later, as if that weren't horrible enough, when he was an adult, his own little girl also died in a fire. And he rambled around the country, you know. I don't know if anybody really knows why he was so restless. Maybe it had to do with his disease, oncoming disease. But, you know, he really championed the, the working man and the poor. Um, anyway, maybe I'll play that one for you.
Ballad Maker was born in 1912 in Okemo, Oklahoma. He lived his life as a troubadour on the tail end of a comet, singing the people's songs. He wrote the words. He rambled around this country through the dust bowl years. He wrote about what he saw as he rambled. Hungry people waiting in relief lines, rolling dust clouds, the striking workers in the mines, singing the people's songs. He wrote the words. He's the finest troubadour this world's ever seen. His songs are at the heart of the promise of this land. Takes a troubadour singing his songs. Takes a ballad maker to carry it on. We'll keep singing as long as it takes. He wrote songs about the migrant workers and refugees. He wrote 28 songs in 30 days. Giving a voice to the downtrodden, 3,000 songs written in the end. They're the people's songs, and we know the words. He's the finest troubadour this world's ever seen. His songs are at the heart of the promise of this land. Takes a troubadour singing his songs Takes a ballad maker to carry it on We'll keep singing as long as it takes Ballad maker left this world in the said the world is the music and the people are the song singing the people's songs he wrote the word he's the finest troubadour this world's ever seen the songs are at the heart of the promise of this land takes a troubadour singing his songs takes a ballad Beautiful. I don't remember if you remember the gaslight in Greenwich Village. I do, yes. All right, so here's my gaslight's story, because <laughs> I knew Woody Guthrie. So Arlo Guthrie was performing that night. And I went not because it was Arlo, it was because it was Woody Guthrie's son. And he starts playing this song. And a few people were friends of his, and he starts playing the first few bars of Alice's Restaurant before it was ever recorded. Wow. And the place is rocking. 
but he's playing before ever really, before the public really knew about it. And it became a really special night for me. Many years later, I was doing a TV interview with John, um, John Steinbeck, Steinbeck's son, Thomas Steinbeck, which is also a thrill for me. Also an author, wrote a book called Down to the Soundless Sea. A few weeks later, uh, his wife calls me up, and he says, my nephew and his wife are coming to town to perform at the brokerage on Long Island. Can you help them out with some publicity? So I said, sure, put them on the radio program, invited them to come on my TV program. His nephew's uh, husband's wife was Sarah Lee Guthrie. Oh, And wow. I am sitting across from Woody's granddaughter. Wow. Arlo's daughter. Talking like we're talking now with you, which is also a thrill, and they're singing and performing and talking. And I could have died right <laughs> there. Because I think you can understand the connections, how yes. special it is. And it came out of the blue because of an interview that I did, but the thread goes from Woody to Arlo to Sarah Lee. And of course, you also referenced um, Dylan. So. Once again, these connections yeah, come in wow. out of nowhere, but the connections are really, really special. Well, you must have a good antenna. <laughs> You're attracting good stuff. So uh, before you leave us, I want more people to know about where you're performing. So you have a website where they can check? Yes, carolinedoctorow.com. And uh, please check it out. There's something different every week. Right, so I'm going to ask one last favor. Can you kind of play us out? I would appreciate oh, that yes, greatly. Oh, sure. Should I sing and play or oh, just play? No, whatever you want. Okay. I'll just play another original. This is sort of a more lighthearted song called Sweet to Me. I thought he was tough With a voice as sweet as a hummingbird A white shirt and rolled up sleeves Fast caddies in Lincoln seat Could always leave So put a little sugar, baby, in my tea Won't cost you nothing to be sweet to me
You can wait up, baby, in case he comes through. I won't be around, but my heart is still true. Chasing rainbows, no alibis. Nobody's ahead. The past don't apply, so put a little sugar in my tea. Won't cost you nothing to be sweet to me. Put a little sugar, baby, in my tea. Won't cost you nothing to be sweet to me. That was Carolyn Doctorow. I'm Larry Davidson. You've been listening to Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. See you next time. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisofaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.